This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take me out. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me is a man who basically immerses himself in streaming television and writes about it on one website called Always Be Watching. Has a great newsletter if you're interested. He's also on SBS uh, online doing a whole bunch of their TV and movie stuff. But really, what I'm really thrilled about is that he does a podcast, much like many people have said to me with One Hit Minute, what a fantastic idea for a podcast this man has. His name is Dan Barrett, and he's the host of Batman Land. Welcome, Dan, to One Heat Minute. Thank you, Blake. Now, here's a couple of things. First of all, I wish I could claim credit for Batman Land. <laughs> it's not the case at all. So I work at SBS as my day job, and there uh, SBS Vice Land, they just got the rights to the old Batman TV show, the yes. 1960s Pure West. And so like, they started joking around saying, oh, there should be a Batman podcast. Yes. And this guy, Chris Fagans, is just like, yeah, you know, let's joke about this. And, you know, it's going on. But then suddenly a joke became a real life thing and cut to, you know, like two weeks later, I'm behind a microphone hosting a Batman podcast <laughs> about Adam West's Batman. Like it's a dream come true. It is. A, it's a dream come true for the listeners as well, because you do much like I do. You've uh, collected a cavalcade of Batman obsessives, both closet and very outward Batman obsessives together um, to talk through the bright night, giving him giving him some time to shine again in this world that's all Christian bailed and Ben Affleck'd out <laughs> with, with Batman. Oh, look, absolutely. And the other thing as well, which is just the ability to parlay my passions into doing podcasts at SBS, <laughs> um, I've somehow managed to have launched a second podcast. Holy doing there, shit. Which by the time this publishes, I don't know what week we'll be into. So I might be halfway through the run. <laughs> uh, but I'm doing a podcast about The Good Fight, which oh, is The Good wow. Wife spinoff. I know The Good Fight. I'm obsessed with The Good Wife and now The Good Fight. My wife's obsessed with The Good Wife. So yeah, she'll, she'll, be, she'll be a subscriber for sure. I haven't seen The Good Fight yet because I think we're waiting to binge it. Yeah, yeah, you should do. So there's 10 episodes of The Good Fight already. Yes. And as we're recording this, it comes back to SBS next week. Fantastic. Yeah, so in theory, the podcast will be up and running. And the only reason it won't be running at that point is because something's happened with management. But I'm sure it'll all be okay and the podcast probably exists. But I was thinking about this on the car ride over. I've been podcasting for like years and years. So like we'll say a decade conservatively. Yes. Like I was right there at the cusp of podcasting. Yeah. I used to do this thing called Televised Revolution. Ran for like about 12 years. Ridiculous. Like it was five years too long. But anyway, I just kept on going. <laughs> but in all of that time, this is the first podcast I've actually been invited onto where I haven't been involved in making it. You're, you're the, this is your first special guest where you come in and you just blow in like the breeze and get out of here. Like, absolutely. Wh- so I've done a few weird like streaming <laughs> conversations, which I think got podcasted as well. But this is the first dedicated podcast. Well, hold on. We are in a new studio setup, and I want to see Dan's face. I'm moving okay. a pee popper out of the way. I'm hiding behind a big black <laughs> disc here. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting rid of that. I'm actually getting some nice mic covers. But yes, well, welcome. This is the this is the one heat minute. This is the new one heat minute studio. So this is what podcasting looks like. It's <laughs> that, all glamour. <laughs> I saw some photos on the internet, and I tried to replicate it as best <laughs> I could. So this is kind of where, where it's at. But mate, welcome to Heat. Tell me about your love of 
Is it Michael Mann or is it Heat for you? Okay, so here's the thing. The only reason I started listening to One Heat Minute is because... Okay, let's take things back a minute. <laughs> My first exposure to Heat wasn't really seeing the film in a cinema. Okay, it was purely... I was hanging around on a web forum, which was a spin-off from Kevin Smith's Viewerskew forums back in the day. Yes. And it was, a ta- it was a website called The Tango Board. I don't even know where the name came from. But it was just a bunch of dudes aged somewhere between like 16 to 35, all talking about, you know, the cool movies and TV shows of the time. And Heat, obviously, was a hot topic of conversation. Of course. But I hadn't seen it, so I kind of just kind of ignored the conversation, but I knew that it was certainly something worth checking out. Now, I don't know whether or not I saw the film before then, but the next thing that really entered my consciousness heat-wise is the TV show Peep Show. Now, no, have you ever watched Peep Show? No. Okay, so this is a British comedy series where you've got two guys of whom I suspect that you'll find yourself relating quite heavily to both of them. Yeah. They're both guys, as the show begins, they're like late 20s, but it ends with them in the early 40s. But like the two of them are just kind of um, social outcasts to a certain degree, but they've got obsessions with the finer things in life. And there's this great episode where they're convinced to go to the theatre. There's these two women of whom, you know, they're very attractive ladies, but the unfortunate thing is they've dragged them to the theatre. And both of them are there, and you hear, like, their internal monologues, because that's how the show works. Yes. And they're essentially saying, look, we've got Heath on DVD at home. Why are we staying here at the theatre? Like, why would you watch these performers when you've got some of the greatest performers that cinema's ever had to offer at home, ready to watch on DVD? Couldn't agree more. So Often a thought in my in many media screenings I've been to watching films. Exactly, and it's the thing. So anytime I'm at the theatre, my first thought is always, I've got Heat on DVD at home, why am I not watching that? Now, that's a lie to myself, because I don't own Heat on DVD. <laughs> but I have seen it a couple of times, and I really, really like it. Um, I'm just not obsessed with it in the way that some people at this table may be. <laughs> yeah. And I was trying to work it out why it is that I don't really have an obsession for this film. Because I generally tend to like films which are bombastic and over the top. And this is a real performance movie. Yes. Okay, and I want to talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, we will. But, like, it's hard for me to look at this film wondering why it is that I'm not Gaga for it. Because <laughs> it ticks all the boxes for me. It just might take time, Dan. You just... What 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 I think is, you know, what, I'm, I'm like you. I never saw this at the cinema. Um, I... It was like 1990, 1995. I was still in primary school at the time, so like I, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to see it at the cinema. And I was going to the movies pretty regularly and seeing movies that maybe weren't age appropriate. I saw Sneakers at the theater with my dad, like random. That's a great Not, formative film. Great formative film. Too many, too many secrets, dude. Too many secrets, right? Nineteen ninety two. So I, I was definitely aware of it, but I wasn't aware of these actors. And it was like later, about nineteen ninety seven. You know, the VHS revolution was, you know. And especially on the weekends, uh, it's so it's so fun to hear you talk about a forum because, like, on a weekend, geeks back in the day would like go to the video shop and get like dollar, like to pay pay like ten dollars and get seven weekly videos to to rent with their yeah. friends. This is my Friday night through my teen years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and so I, it was at that stage. Like one of one of my friends would go and get a sack of movies, and I and I I think Heat became thick in that rotation. As mm. in, we'd get six other movies that we hadn't seen. And Heat just started to always be, oh, let's get Heat again. And it just kept, ha- it started happening really early, got a copy of it on VHS, wore it out. And yeah, it just became a film that I deeply appreciated more and more um, uh, because I'm a guy who loves New Hollywood, um, which is sort of the time in Hollywood, uh, let, let's say pre-Jaws and pre-Star Wars, um, but sort of the post uh 
sort of the post sort of fifties, very restrictive, very um, sort of sexually repressed era. It was like when they all the Hollywood studios stopped making money, so they just started throwing money at this new generation of filmmakers. And so, so this is really sort of late sixties, maybe from like sort of graduate si- era onwards. Yeah, sixty eight. Yeah. You're talking like Cassavetes and and those filmmakers. Coppola's came out at that time. George Lucas when he was just a young whippersnapper, yeah, um, yeah. and Scorsese and Michael Mann started. You know, he, they were his contemporaries of age, but he didn't really start making films. And I just think that what's cool about him as a filmmaker is you watch his films later, and I'm like, why do I love them so much? And it started to be like, well, these these kind of feel like new Hollywood, 60s, early 70s, cool American cinema, but he's making it in the 90s because he's, mm. he, he, he diverted straight to television, made like an iconic show like Miami Vice, the TV series, which is amazing um, for its time. It's hard to believe that it is because you see the iconography of the show, like everyone knows the suits and how the guys Yes. Look. But you don't realise until you watch it, it's actually a fairly gritty, like really intelligent TV drama. And it is, and you just look like... In multiple episodes, you're like, oh, there's Bruce Willis. Oh, there's Liam Neeson. And you're just like, literally whoever became huge, huge performers later. Bruce Willis, I'm pretty sure, is like episode <laughs> eight of season one of that one. Yeah, like yeah. It's, it's like la- launching careers very early with, you know, getting people into this, you know, very, very high um, high production quality show. And I had a yeah. real feel, aesthetic, a look. And yeah, really good. Yeah. I, I think the reason why I'm not like a big man head is because I think I'm more of a dialogue guy. Yes. And, like, he's very much about the visual and the richness of that, whereas I lean towards, like, if I'm thinking about sort of great crime caper films, I think maybe more like he's... Um, sorry, he's... This is the film we're watching. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about now. Um, Heist. Heist, So, I'm yeah. thinking about... Uh, what's the name of the director? Uh, David Mamet. Yeah. Like, David Mamet, I, like, he's the bee's knees. I've seen oh, so man, many Mamet great. films because it's all dialogue. Yeah, he loves it. Yeah, and really, if you look at the archetypes, they're not that far removed from what you're seeing in a man film. No, and they're operating in the same level. But it's funny that you say that, though, um, because I learned recently on, on, on an episode that you guys would have heard you know, fairly recently from Craig Matheson, um, uh, who had an original like draft of the man script while it was still untitled. It wasn't called Heat. And it to- and it was more dialogue. And this heavy. is of the TV movie that it was originally filmed No, from, this or? is the, the theatrical script that he was pitching that was okay. going into production that at that stage didn't have a, uh, didn't have a title. And it was uh, more wordy. And so I think even these performers... Yeah. helped strip some of that out. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's a real talent for man to like, as obsessive as you hear he is, um, is able to have a script and then like go in with performers and let them make it of, you know, make it themselves and just keep stripping it back and making it all about what they're conveying and not what they're saying. But it's a great, you know, I, I don't think there's a problem with watching a, a lovely mammoth film and watching them ch- chinwag the whole way through it. <laughs> but, um, but I, I don't know. There's just something that just hits me on every level of this movie. Yeah. I mean, you go with what connects. And I mean, I'm thinking about this interesting thing about this is a dialogue heavy film. Because you think about Pacino and De Niro, neither of their careers are really known as being talkative guys. No. I mean, there's some roles where they're supposed to be a talkative guy. So, yes. I mean, yeah. You know, like De Niro has his twice. Travis Bickles yeah. and, um, and, and Pacino has his uh, a Dog Day Afternoons in yeah. there. So but they're not really, it's not, not quite chatty. the same. It's, no, it's not, not mammoth. They're not, you know, no. it's not clever turns of phrase. It's just lots of talking. <laughs> yes. Well... Dan, you've broken a record. This is the first 14-ish minutes of this episode, and oh. we haven't even talked about this minute that we're going to talk about. Okay, let's do the minute. <laughs> guys, Dan and I are going to watch it, and you guys are going to listen to it, and we're going to come back and talk about it. Oh, okay. Like it? Like it. Like it. 
<laughs> Do you know? So you are insane. I mean, you like it? Beautiful. Just don't ask him where he got it. Yeah, that's what, <laughs> that's what I am. <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up, honey? She doesn't know, just like me. I don't know either. <laughs> what a minute. What a minute. Yeah. Now, what I really like about this minute is, and when I was watching a film recently, when I knew I was going to be talking to you about it, I was trying to work out what the film's really about. And it dawned on me that this film's completely about performance. And what you were saying a little while ago about how men really came up sort of at the same time as like that sort of great era of like 1960s, 70s American cinema, which is really when you see like the rise of Pacino and De Niro. Absolutely. Like you look at these two guys and like they have been the preeminent performers of that time. Like when he came out, like the reason why everyone paid attention to this film is because it's the first time you've really got De Niro and Pacino like actually on screen together facing off against each other. Yeah, exactly. They, they were in the Oscar-winning Best Picture in one of the most iconic American films of all time, The Godfather yeah. Part Two, playing in parallel um, these connected characters and exactly. never got to share the screen. Yeah, but now you actually get them on screen together. So it was a monumentous occasion in terms of Huge. if you're a fan of acting and performance, it's right there. But when you're watching this particular minute, this is where the film clicked in for me, where I realized it's about performance. But also, the film is kind of about cinema. And so, when I was watching it, I realized there's the moment where he sort of watched... There's a bit of dialogue at the beginning, where you've got him saying, uh, what's the line? It's uh, just don't ask him where you got it from. Yeah, so, so right, it's where we start the... Like, if you start the opening frame, the opening seconds, you see yep. Neil take a sip of a cup of coffee, Michael... Hands his uh, hands his his lovely wife a, uh, a a gift, and it turns out to be a massive diamond ring, which they show their daughter. The fantastic performance by Tom Sizemore here, looking like a little kid, enjoying <laughs> her, going wow, being very impressed. And then, and she asks <laughs> Elaine, bless her, she asks Neil, D- did you know about this? And he gives her a little nod. Well, yeah. And the great line, well, don't ask him where he got it, is coming up. And it's about 53, 53 minutes, 25 seconds, 26 seconds is in the minute. That's where we're at. And that's where the film reveals itself to me. Because <laughs> when he says that, it just kind of feels like one of these sort of hacky, sort of lame lines that you just hear people deliver in real life. Yes. Okay, but at that point, the wall is suddenly broken because you haven't really heard anyone deliver just really hacky lines like that yet. <laughs> it's suddenly like he's putting up a sense of artifice around himself, like he's trying to be like an everyday person who can actually engage with other people like everyday people do. Yes. And so at that stage, you're like, oh, wait, no, he actually is putting in a performance to everyone around him. Yes. Okay, and you're looking at that thinking, oh, well, this is maybe if you take that step further, it's actually kind of what the film's entirely about which is, he's, I think, might be the last great film of that period of cinema. It's kind of like it's reached that peak, that pinnacle as to what American cinema had been doing since the late 60s through to 1995. Yes. And so if you think about like this scene representing performance, apply that to the entire film, 
And I think you've kind of got this sort of um, statement that he's making saying that, hey, look, this film is entirely the summation of what we've been doing as actors and bringing that to the screen for like the last 25 years. Yeah, I think, but what I think is even cooler about this, I think you're right on, it's that this is like the the long-distant punctuation mark. This was like the last gasp of those 70s because as soon as Star Wars... Ha- it really, uh, I sort of consider it like Raging Bull because, yep. like, you know, you, you do definitely have Jaws in 1975 and you do have Star Wars, but I think that Raging Bull is like the last great indie movie of that period and then it kind of goes into, you know... Um, the Reagan era of cinema <laughs> um, where they go back and get revenge for Vietnam by, uh, you know, it's the difference between First Blood and First Blood Part 2 where one movie is like a, a movie about a guy who's deeply tortured and internalising all this, you know, crazy stuff that he's seen and then the second one he's a uh, muscle etched uh, out of stone and he's ready to take revenge on a small third world country. Um, so Same I- metaphor applies to Police <laughs> Academies 1 and 2 as well. <laughs> um but I, but I think you're right, and that's what I, I think I love about this film. It's, but it, it's it, yeah, it's it's about performing what you think normal life is, and yeah. getting underneath those layers, and also, then revealing sort of I guess, you know, what you've created to be your purpose, and you're always sort of in denial. Man's obsessed with these professionals, and in every facet, like people who who would rather not have a normal life and and questioning even what a normal life is and i think that's cool like it's the cool sort of balance that you have with like it, exactly like you said cinema it's like what's re- are we watching real life we're we watching real life at the you know with the boring bits taken out it's re- uh, yeah it's really excellent and this is the thing so i watched that and i'm a very cynical person and i kind of <laughs> hate sort of wankery so when i thought about that i'm like dan that's just kind of bullshit like you know you've got that thought i'm sure it doesn't really bear out but the next scene that takes place, or at, at this at the end of this minute, you've got him watching the relationship sort of across the table, and it's that sort of moment where you realise, oh wait, he's sort of lacking something, and he has this moment of realisation, saying that, you know, I need this into my life. So he's been a recluse from relationships for most of his life. It's yeah, been all about been, the work been, for him. been following a set of rules for his entire life. It's all about the rules. And now he's realising he needs more. This woman that's entered his life recently sees her as the opportunity. And in a sense, like that just seems like a very obvious sort of writerly thing to do. And I sort of felt about that and I'm like, well, wait, this actually ties into the idea that this is all about artifice and performance. And this is the minute where I think the film tips its hand, saying that it is really all about performance. Because immediately this minute leads into that phone call conversation, which is a very honest, tender moment between them. And we can't talk about that because that's the next minute. <laughs> but if you think about... You, like, you are, you are the... allowed. Uh, just just okay. so you know the rules, Dan, because we're talking about Neil and his rules. The rules yep. are, look, what we've understood is... We're going to come on to One Heat Minute and I'm going to get to talk to great people like Dan and the multitude of guests that we've talked to. It's impossible to stay in your minute. Sometimes you do have to talk about what happens around it. So it's okay to stretch a little bit. Okay. Well, I want to talk about this being the foundational minute in terms of performance. (laughs) So you've got this minute, which leads into the phone call, which is the next minute. But I think it's about one or two minutes after that where you see the rooftop where Pacino and his men are watching on. And suddenly, like, that's that other layer of performance where we're seeing this dinner take place where there's a level of performance taking place within the dinner where you've got De Niro trying to be, you know, a real person. He's acting there. Um, He has a moment of reality for himself, like the actual self-realization sort of comes to effect. So he becomes a real person. But in doing that, that's Michael Mann saying, hey, look, I'm giving you some performance right now. (laughs) Okay. And then it takes you to that exact next scene where you're watching the cops of whom are watching these 
people down there sort of acting their lives out while they're watching on like the audience mm. and so like it just kind of feels like it's this couple of minutes where it's just layers upon layers of performance just being unraveled and I think I'm going to go even deeper because you can never be too wanky or bullshitty on this podcast when you're diving into <laughs> heat as far as, as far as I'm concerned. So what is absolutely fantastic is when they're looking around the table at this, you know, it's it's basically like the Crooks family. So we, we do get an equivalent, sort of equivalent scene with the cops, you know, um, you know, the cop wives are out with all their cop husbands and their kids are being babysat at home and they're letting their mm. hair down because their cops work really hard. And I guess this is where the wives of policemen can sort of sort of briefly suck it up for a short, you know, for, for, for the little amount of time that they get with their husbands to eventually go and, you know, have a, have a breakout party once a month or whatever it ends up being for these mm. people. But I love, if you go to minute, it's, and it's so sorry to not say earlier, this is obviously the 54th minute of one hit minute, <laughs> and it's the theatrical cut. So if you're watching the definitive edition, don't worry, we're describing in detail what's happening. We're at the restaurant um, with Neil and his crew, and they're sitting around the table. It's just before he contacts Edie, but we don't get into that phone call, as you would have heard already. But if you're watching the theatrical Warner Brothers um, DVD, which is just the you know beautiful Blu-ray upscale print of the original theatrical cut, we're at 53 minutes... 33 seconds and there's just an absolutely divine little frame it almost uh it's almost got a touch of you know the last supper about it um where why uh, hasn't this shot been on that twitter account one perfect shot it uh, look most of this movie you'll find dan (laughs) um dante spinotti did two movies in two in in three years he Mm. did heat um, the, Ita- the Italian cinematographer who worked in Michael Mann very, very, very often. And he's LA Confidential. And I would argue... Oh, yeah. I would argue that those two movies, the the one perfect shot Twitter guy would need to screenshot half the goddamn movie for both of those because they're absolutely both just stunning, stunning properties. Yeah, now, I just, we were talking earlier about De Niro and Pacino. And yes. honestly, I don't think they've really been better since this film. No, I think this is the pin- pinnacle. Like, this is the end. This so this it. is the end of American cinema. <laughs> yes. Like, as it stood. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, a lot of the uh, Mamet films that I love come a few years after this. But let's just call this the end of American cinema but for let's, the purpose but, of this podcast. But let's go to, but, let's go to this frame, Dan, before you jump in. Briefly, I just wanted to say, it's interesting, Val Kilmer, who's in this frame as well. Yes. This is the last time he was probably really actually good as well. I mean, I would argue my here and say that Spartan oh god Spartan sorry another David Mamet film another David Mamet film he is amazing in that film (laughs) I don't think it's a great movie though no I don't so I'll argue that it's not a great movie (laughs) and that you know this could possibly be the last great one but there's also the film by Shane Black which I'm Kiss Kiss Bang Bang Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and he's he's pretty amazing he's amazing in that film but he was on that heat like streak of like like he was the hot guy in cinema at the time big time but he, he's literally film, stepped off the set of Batman forever to yeah. do this movie. But he was after, held up. Yeah, after this, though, like, he's just kind of in... Like, he's in the Saints, and, like, as far as I'm concerned, it just falls off the cliff after here. Yeah, I think I think uh, what Michael Mann gets, what Oliver Stone got, and what I think some of the very best kill performances get is don't try and make this guy polish. No. I think he needs to have some grit and some dirt, and that's what I love about Chris Hillis. Chris is not a great guy, but Kilmer's natural charisma, striking good looks, give him something that's really super engaging, even though he's not necessarily the nicest guy. And he's also, you only have to look at the, what his physical performance in this movie, especially carrying a freaking automatic weapon, is he's an obsessive. Like, he's clearly a guy who can get obsessed with a role to the point of perfectionism. And so I think you look at all of his best roles, they all do that. Um, and, and he's also quite self-aware. What's, late, what's later on, what's so great in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Gay Perry yeah. is that he, he kind of knows that he's kind of a bit portly. He's hanging out in LA. He knows he can't be that masculine dude. So it's cool to kind of 
flip that on its head, and it's that self. He does have that self awareness as well, but at this time. He, he, he felt like he was Jim Morrison in the doors. Like, he was unstoppable at this time. Well, he was. He was also the only textured thing about Batman Forever. Yeah, he's the only thing that's even yeah. remotely salvageable in that. Sorry, but this perfect shot that we've got on the screen. Yeah, so what I... It, it does proceed. It's only minutes after we've seen Ashley Judge, Charlene Chehalis, face off with Neil after him catching her with Alan Marciano, who's played by Hank Azaria. And so he's saying clean up and go home. And in this frame, he looks there, and if Ashley Judd isn't just a picture of Georgian perfection, <laughs> yeah, really I don't know I don't know what it is. She's, she's absolutely stunning. She's, she is a force in this. But right now, she's that beautiful trophy southern wife, and you've got this absolutely gorgeous Val Kilmer sort of lovingly whispering something knowingly into her ear, and she's very calm. And I think that's another layer of this is that, and this is what I love about is that I've wa- I've now watched it. I was talking to Dan just before we hit record, conservatively two hundred times, and I still float between whether Neil is in denial, like about his real life or what what the purpose of Edie is, or whether it's genuine. So right now he's staring around this table. And when he goes to Michael and Elaine, it's lovely. And he goes to Treo and his partner, it's quite lovely. And Michael and Elaine's little daughter's there, and it's very beautiful. But he gets to Chris and Charlene. And in my head, when he sees this perfect frame, it's a lie. Like, it's a lie because he knows what he had to do to orchestrate this frame. Like, she's ready to walk out. And he's looking at it, and he's going, this is what I need. So for me, conversely, completely, when I look at this moment, this is where this is the moment that makes me question about is Edie really his Fiji or is he in complete denial about who he is? And and when he gets up and makes this phone conversation, until it's like I don't even know if he's lying to himself in this moment. It's I feel like he was never going to call her again. And in this moment the lie of these happy crew was sold enough to him that he thought he thought that that's what he needed. Oh, absolutely! And so that's what I love about like and and there are some times where I go, no, Edie's the right choice, and Edie's exactly what Edie is genuinely what he thought he needed, and she need and she was the complimenting him, and she was the heart, and she was something that was going to give him an anchor point to like re- reality. But then I see this frame that he's orchestrated. And you can even see him in the left of the frame. Like yeah, it's yeah. like he's like the artist who's orchestrated this fake pretty picture. And there we are. But I mean, even him, like the act of him calling her, because he's a man of whom he's been sticking to the rules. Yes. The most obvious trite thing that any writer can do is it's the make your character break the rules. Make the character break the rules <laughs> just before like the final, like yeah. the final act. <laughs> Okay, yes. it's kind of like that whole thing of you know got one day till retirement. You know that guy's not making it through the day. Okay, we oh, know th- that there's a guy who made it through four movies. <laughs> but um, yep, yep, and, and a TV ex- series and, now, a, and, and a TV series. Yeah, um, but I mean, it's just this thing. Of, sorry, can we just pause? I did never believe we'd talk about the Lethal Weapon TV series on the one minute podcast, but I want to tell you, it is a guilty pleasure. It is really bad, and I know it's bad, Dan. I really do. I'd really like to come to the party on this. <laughs> I, I just can't do it. There is nothing about that show that I find in any way redeeming. Except it does have Ted Chaw from Mad Men in it. It does. Which I'm almost willing to give the show a pass entirely for that casting. <laughs> so close to doing it. 
Back to heat. Anyway, for the love of God, dress you up. Back to heat. Okay, because it is the most try obvious thing you can do. Yeah. Like again, that just speaks to the idea that this scene, this minute, is really just about giving away the hand to saying, you know what, this is all about performance, and even to the point where I'm going to be incredibly obvious as a filmmaker and do the one just basic, yeah, bottom rate thing that I probably can do as a writer director. And I think what's cool about it is you're so you're totally right. Like the maneuver to have a guy who's so obsessed with the rules, and Macaulay clearly is, and he he, he spells them out in many occasions during the film. But what's cool is the way that he privately breaks them. And I think it's good here because it's like a it's actually a it's a very deft move in the writing to go, we're gonna not we're not only we're gonna have him break the rules, we're gonna have him break them really early and not tell anyone. So that it starts to jeopardize what you're actually thinking that he's gonna do for the rest of the movie because mm. he has kind of quietly broken these rules. You've seen him explain it to Chris. You see him later um, in you know the the dynamic scene with Vincent across the coffee table is that he breaks the rules. Like he's willing to bend and break the rules for himself, but it's that he still has to he's still got this you know He's still got this facade of the discipline, and you just don't know whether the the mantra that he keeps saying of discipline, 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 whether he is going to legitimately, when he feels that heat around the corner, make a run for it. Now, have you talked much about Ashley Judd on the podcast yet? Have talked, uh, have talked many times about Ashley Judd, but would definitely want to talk more about Ashley Judd. Okay, well, I just want to sort of clarify, I'm not a Judd head. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not completely across her filmography. Yes. But I can only think of really two great films that I think she's been in. Mm-hmm. And both times she's attached to complete dirtbag characters. Yes. So you've got this film where, you know, with the dirtbag. But then also a little film called Con Air. She's in that, isn't she? No. No, who am I thinking of? Can we do an edit here? How embarrassing. <laughs> I've, I've mixed up my Hollywood stylists. Yeah, it's, I think it's like, it was one of those singers... Who was that singer? Leanne Rhymes or something no, like that? Not Leanne Rhymes. I don't know who it was. I don't know. I think Leanne Rhymes may have contributed to the soundtrack. This, this is what I'm happy happy to say. You will never hear me know any facts about Conair. <laughs> Conair is terrible. Look, Conair is terrible. <laughs> but let me just defend Conair for a moment. Dad, Dad, just exactly. Just to divert the conversation, as you said, Dan. There is no redeeming features <laughs> about Conair. And, and not even John Malkovich nor Steve Buscemi nor Nicky Cage, nor John Cusack can say that movie. There is going to be a moment in your life where you're sitting on the couch and Conair somehow comes on. You're at a, you know, a gathering of friends and then Conair just comes on Channel 7 late at night. You're going to find yourself watching Conair again at some point in your life. Possibly. It's going to happen. Okay. It's not possible. It is, it is going to happen. If, if Channel 7 have anything to do with it. Yeah. I'll as never. much as I know the sun will rise tomorrow morning and the eternal war between dogs and cats will continue, I know you will find yourself watching Conair at some point again well, in life. I, you, it's been prophesized here first. It's, it's just a fact. <laughs> it's just going to happen. When you do, watch the film from this new perspective, okay? Which is, if you look at the Nicolas Cage character yes. and think that he isn't just like a southern guy with a terrible drawl, but rather he's a character of whom has some sort of mental disability taking place. Right. Okay, and it's actually an incredibly progressive, woke movie. <laughs> okay, if you watch it from that perspective, it's an entirely different film, wow. and it's an amazing piece of cinema as a result. <laughs> wow. Simon okay. West, the director, I think, has really delivered something special with it. <laughs> well, thank you, Simon. Thank you, Dan. I think uh, when I catch it on at, at 9.30 p.m. on the Gold Coast when I'm on holiday at Sam's Nana's house watching free-to-air television. My wife, Sam, that is. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. I'm ready. It's going to happen. But anyway, I apologize for taking us down this path because I don't even have the actress right. <laughs> no, but look, Ashley Judd, this is the, you know, the what's kind of criminal about her career here is she takes this role of the most prominent woman in this 
really dude-laden movie. Um, you know, sort of Diane Venora does have a tremendous role to play in this, but I, I would argue just because Judd gets to stand toe-to-toe with both Macaulay and Chris Chehalis and then eventually with um, McKelty Williamson's Drucker as well. Like, she, she gets to play in, in Azaria. She's getting to interplay with probably a lot of a lot of the different male characters and a lot, a lot of the different things. I just find her so dynamic. And then you've got Kiss the Girls, which is a rather huge one, um, which is the, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of a thriller, which then there was uh, Along Came a Spider, I think, was the second one of that. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Something, something like that. But she sort of, she, she ascended super quick and was like, you know, a, a superstar for 10 minutes and then disappeared off the face of the earth. And now, in 2018, we start to find out the extent of what happened, which is... You know, she got on the bad side of Harvey Weinstein and he blacklisted her and she got sort of relegated to terrible roles from then, which is just criminal. Yeah. Uh, just for just establishing it, it was Monica Potter. Monica Potter, who you played the role. No. I don't even know how I confuse Potter and Chud. <laughs> it's like my entire life's a lie. <laughs> my life's a lie and I've studied Con Air as well. Look, and... We're only 30 seconds into this minute. We've still got a lot to go. Okay, let's, let's hit the rest. Let's, so, there's... What's great is that and you see Neil take the beats. He's taking it all in. Yeah, I think, you know... I like there's the little girl there to really add that family dynamic to it. It's not just sort of couples coupling up, but really there is that promise that it extends somewhere beyond just being a couple. And, you know, uh, what I would say to you, Dan, what's really cool is at this table, um, even though Val Kilmer looks the most like an addict... Um, right now in the frame, 53 minutes and 43 seconds, you've got Danny Trejo playing a character called Trejo. It's one of his first roles from when he was out of prison. And you have Robert De Niro and Danny Trejo. Both men were Tom Sizemore's, um, uh, oh my God, what are they called? Sponsors for his uh, heroin and meth addiction. Really? Knowing him from his? Yeah. So, uh, well, I think... Sizemore and De Niro knew each other before, and then it was late, um, you know, uh, throughout his addiction, later on, um, Treya became his um, sponsor because they were, you know, from their relationship in Heat. So um, the lovely Oscar Hillstrom, who was on the show, gave us that little tidbit. But I think that there's a real, there's that real familial quality, and I think think that's one of the great things about, I think, the Sizemore and the De Niro relationship here is, Sizemore looks at De Niro in a very admirable, like it's it's like a father son sort of thing. He he's really admires him, and he wants he wants Neil to tell him what to do, and he's and and he's benefiting, he's reaping the benefits of like listening to Neil's mantras and listening to that discipline, and he's 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 sort of being able to skate through with a family and have those things, but the discipline that they've kept has sort of kept them on the straight and narrow. Is and this the only film where Danny Trejo laughs? Because within this minute, we just throw him <laughs> laughing with his lady at the table. It could. It, this might be the la- first and last film where Danny Trejo genuinely smiles happily. So it's 53 minutes, 46 seconds. Danny Trejo. Like Tom- it's unbridled joy on his Look face. Look at that. He's actually happy. He's just out of prison. Yeah. He's just out of prison. Now, at this very moment in time, I'm kicking myself because a couple of months ago I was in LA and I was walking along and I came across this bar. It was like a sort of Mexican cantina sort of an establishment. Yes. Obviously not real. It was all, you know, artifice, much like in this scene. It was Danny Trejo's bar. Like, he owns a bar. And I want to say it's called Danny Trejo's, or it could be called Machete's. I can't quite remember. Okay. We can Google. I've got a a photo in my phone right now. (laughs) I can dig it out. 
but I'm killing my like I'm kicking myself that I didn't go in there because I'd probably have tales to tell about you know the world that he's constructed for himself <laughs> through his bar. Look, Danny Trejo is is a great dude. Like he he's he's a guy who will just randomly pop up on a podcast you never thought he'd appear on. He's make he's opening restaurants. He's he's still um, involved in uh, helping uh, people who are struggling with lives of crime and stuff like that. He's a really cool dude. Was he also in Con Air? Don't remember. I feel like he may have been. Look, I know uh, these are the, the <laughs> random facts that I know about this film have all but a- a- helped me abandon movies like Con Air out of my head. Okay, I'm going to quietly just sort of Google this <laughs> while we're chatting. So, yeah, look, um, I I really like I really like this minute, and I love what you said about um, I love what you said about how they're all putting on a, a happy family performance. It's and not I, Danny Trejo. I'm confusing you with Monica Potter. <laughs> What was Monica Potter's bar called in LA? I want to know. Was it uh, was it called Bunny Back in the Box? Uh, Broken Dreams. Broken Dreams. Ouch. Sorry, Potter. Um, I actually yeah. really like Monica Potter. She was quite good in Boston Legal, which was one of the spin-offs the of The less, Practice. The Lesser. See, yeah. what happened to David E. Kelly? That's another podcast you... David E. Kelly's had a bonanza year of a year and a half. Yeah, so he went he went down the hill but and did Wonder Woman pilot and then came back with Big Little Lies, right? Yeah, I mean also don't forget all this time that he's married to Michelle Pfeiffer. So you can't necessarily what? Yeah. This is the thing. Okay, so you you're winning David E. Kelly. At no point has he ever had a down moment in his life. <laughs> okay. But in the last like year or so he's done uh, Big Little Lies. Yeah. And also he had this show on Amazon starring Billy Bob Thornton. Oh gosh, I can't think of the name of it right now. It's this really interesting, like, throwback courtroom drama. It's a lot of fun. Mm. If you've got an Amazon Prime subscription... I do. Check it out. Uh, it is called... You can do some Googling something. in a second. Look it up yourself. You... We don't have all the answers, people. <laughs> you guys have got Google right there. Come on. Um, question. Yes, sir. We, talk, we talked about... You know, we're, we're looking around the table. Do any people sitting around this table have a better or more iconic performance in their resume? I mean, Danny Trejo's got some pretty iconic performances later on. Machete? Well, I mean, come on, that's his iconic performance. That's 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 his. That's. I don't think it's his best performance. That's oh no. Yeah. I mean, he's been in better Rodriguez films. Yes, he certainly yeah. has. Desperado, for one. Desperado. In fact, you know what? We were talking before we started. You said how many times you'd seen this film. Yes. I was trying to think of a film that I would have seen anywhere near as much as this thing. I was thinking Point Break, but Desperado may actually be the Desperado, film. Desperado. Yeah. Yeah. Great film. Seen it a lot of times too. I don't even know how I've seen it that many times. I think it was just on Foxtel a lot when I was a teenager. <laughs> you know what's unfathomable, Dan, is, and we talked about it, is like as a parent now, I've seen Moana and I've seen Finding Dory hundreds of times. Like, None of those films are better than Desperado. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. They don't have Salma Hayek. They don't have the line, take my car, it's what I bought it for. Um, uh, you know, that, that, that sort of thing. No, they don't have any of that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how many times you can, you know, you can chalk up a watch. Um, but they, unfortunately, you know, this isn't the one Moana minute. This is one heat minute. And, uh, but you'll be heading on to that as the next (laughs) series, right? Absolutely not. No way in hell. Keep the RSS feed. Just roll right on it. Roll in. Okay. Come on. We've got 14 seconds left to go. And so you've got this moment. There's the unbridled joy on Danny Petraeus face. And then Neil just gets up. And he makes a call. And you've got... And what I love about Neil versus Edie from just a purely aesthetic is Neil is so together, loves to be so clinical, loves to... And, and often is wearing his uniform, which is um, 
the same uniform as Vincent in uh, Collateral, which is a what you know a very crisp white shirt, grey suit. You know, it doesn't look like it's too expensive, but looks like it fits him really well. Yeah. And then you get this very messy shot, fifty-three minutes, fifty-three seconds, and you get into Edie's home. Um, it's actually got some lights on. We can still see the actual sea of lights in the background, the luminescence there. And she's doing some art stuff on a computer and the phone's ringing and you go, oh, just in the closing moment of this, uh, closing seconds of this minute, we think, oh, he's contacting Edie. It wasn't a one-night stand. No. It could. He, a whole he, new man. <laughs> he's, a, he's a whole new man. He could be. He could be. Um, really really good little uh, tidbit I was talking to the lads on the Cinephiles podcast and one of their tidbits was that Amy Brenneman basically was asked to do this role was offered and uh, she said no I don't like it it's too violent uh, it's it's full of men and bravado and it's it's full of violence you can see she's got a very hippie vibe Amy Brenneman and um, Michael Mann said um, Michael Mann said no that's why you must do this role you are perfect <laughs> for it because you bring a completely different energy that this movie is missing without you now, I don't think there's a problem with her performance in the film. I think she's perfectly fine. Yes. She doesn't really stand out in this role, though. And my question to you is, what's the iconic Amy Brenneman performance? This is. You think this is? I, I 100% think it is. No, I, I think she's got... So, at the beginnings, she's got sort of naive, naive and she's got a bit, you know, loneliness. Mm. But the 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 devastating Amy Brenneman, like... The, the, like and we just spoke about Desperado. This is one of the things that Robert Rodriguez does insanely well, is he frames his actors' faces um, so dynamically that he kind of gives them almost like a showreel. Like, Antonio Banderas' entire career showreel is in the way that he is shot in Desperado, essentially. Yeah. And I think there's a moment later on that Dante Spinotti gives um, Amy Brenneman, and it's when, it's when Neil, when she see, she's seen Neil on the TV, he goes back to her apartment after the heist, and they sort of run up the hill off of, you know, because she's got a house on stilts in the hills, and she sort of runs off into the grass, and there's, he's, he's, he's pleading with her to come with him. And there's this moment where her face is so deeply hurt that it's just one of the most, I don't know, it's just devastating. It, it's, it's even more devastating, I think, in that moment because she's got a real scorn on her face, and it's not like a hate for him, it's a hate for how she could be fooled by him. And so I think that this, you know, I, I don't think beat for beat her performance is it leaps off the screen like, say, Ashley Jar do. And even Diane Venora has some sensational and thrilling moments in the film. But I think she definitely gets her moments in this. And I, I know she did great work. She was on Judging Amy for a million years, so she probably did some terrific stuff on there. Um, but Also, her, I, I mean, I consider her iconic role to be in The Leftovers. And oh, while her yeah. role, I don't think, is great on The Leftovers, and it's one of the weakest characters within the ensemble, she's pretty amazing. Huh? Yeah, so she's... Yeah, no, she has some moments in Heat far, as far as cin- cinematic work that I, I just... I think everyone has amazing moments in this film, though, for, for, as a performer, but she's just great. I just... Her face on that hill, she dwarfs De Niro in that scene. Like, there's a, they're, they're actually sharing the frame, and she just dwarfs him. And uh, I think, yeah, she's... She's great, but it's but you're right. It's about energies. She she's she's a completely different wavelength to the, what we're about to see. You know, she's she's a nice little holiday. Yeah, she's the literal holiday in this movie. Now you mentioned the house on the stilts. Yes, and I feel now that we've reached the end of the minute. Yes. that this is probably the appropriate time to pose this question to you. 
what do you think is the iconic House on a Stilts, Stilts moment from LA? Is it this film or Lethal Weapon 2? It's Lethal Weapon 2. Yeah, I think so as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I, and again, those movies, Lethal Weapon, <laughs> they're movies. We're talking about movies that we've been obsessed with. Those movies I can watch any and all the time. I'm going to have to do that Lethal Weapon 2 minute. Lethal Weapon... <laughs> that podcast is happening. <laughs> Lethal Minute. Um, Lethal Minute 2. Um, It'll allow me to break out my impersonation <laughs> of the South African uh, impersonation towards the end. You blick. <laughs> but sir, you're blick. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm in. I'm in. Um, we okay. might be co-hosting that one together. Um, <laughs> but uh, look, Dan, thank you so much for coming on to an episode of One Heat Minute. I really appreciate it. And I'm so glad that I got to be the first guy that invited you on a podcast. Yeah, I can't believe it's... Ha- like. How does this even happen? <laughs> I get a feeling like Dan is going to start texting people going, Hey, I invited you onto my 12 podcasts I've had. <laughs> Where was my invite to your podcast? Well, the other thing as well, and this is the weird thing about this week, and when people hear it, it's going to be a weird, disjointed thing. This is the first podcast I've been invited on, or the first podcast that I've done. Yes. But I'm actually invited on to do another podcast, which is this coming Sunday. So. Wow. I'm- in this week alone, I'm on four different podcasts, but two of them are mine, so it doesn't quite count. <laughs> well, guys, Dan you, is... You are my first. And oh. you, it'll be very special as a result. <laughs> I'll remember it forever, Blake. <laughs> oh, thank you, Dan. Well, look, you're the first in the new Heat, uh, One Heat Minute studio setup, which is pretty fun um, to, to have this. Guys, thank you so much for listening. You can find Dan... Um, is it... Uh, the best place is Twitter, right? To probably jump off, or is it always be watching? Where's best? If you want to find me, Twitter at the Dan Barrett. You can find all my gear there. I'll be promoting all my stupid podcasts <laughs> and ridiculous things. But if you're inter- if you're a TV person, yes. subscribe to the Always Be Watching newsletter. Comes out three times a week. Twice a week, it's just sort of interesting articles about TV things, like screen culture more than just TV. So it's like online things, virtual reality. I sort of cover a lot of things, anything storytelling related from a screen perspective. But then on Fridays going into Saturday morning, you'll find an email turn up which gives you a list of all the TV shows that have debuted that week and with a little link to where you can go and watch them. I really like the Friday one. I love yeah. the Friday one. I'm a, I'm a member of Always Be Watching and you've pointed me on to some good stuff, so thank you very much, sir. Always Be Watching is good. That's a great one to sign up for, Dan. And, of course, listen to Batman Land. And, yeah. of course, The Good Fight. What is, the, is, is The it, Good Fight Club. The Good Fight Love, yeah. nice, love that, very good, fantastic name, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Blake Howard. You can find me on the Twitters at Blake is Batman. But if you want to know anything about One Heat Minute, it's oneheatminute.com. Um, you can email us at mail at oneheatminute.com and uh, just you know flick us any tidbits. Um, hit me up on Twitter if you know that there are some essential people I'm going to be talking to. I've got some awesome guests that you would have heard before and after Dan. Um, and thank you so much for subscribing and rating and reviewing One Heat Minute. This is the funnest podcast of the many podcasts that I've ever done, but this is my absolute funnest thing that I do. So thank you so much as well, and uh, we'll catch you next time.